It's a good song, and part of the message of that song can be quite comforting and yet quite terrifying that there's no mountain God won't climb up to get to us, no wall He won't tear down to get to us, but it also says there's no lie that He won't tear down to get to us. That God is committed to having His people and to rescuing us from sin, even Oftentimes, it's the sin that grips our own souls that we don't often see. And God loves us enough to deal with us in that. And so thank you, ladies, for, for singing that song. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6. And you can see the title of the message that Jesus is rejected. Now... This is a description of an event. This is not a reality. That Jesus is not rejected as king. He is not rejected as God's son. That's not the truth of reality. But it is an event. It is a reality that happens in the hearts and minds of men and women. And has throughout history. The Bible tells us quite clearly Jesus is the Son of God eternally, that He is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1 talks about His radiance, that He is actively reigning. And so He is the King. There's no arguing with that. But there have been, there are, and there will be men and women who reject Jesus. They will say no. They will turn away. And this morning we're going to look at a story, a startling story, where Jesus is rejected. And we need to pay attention. We need to pay special attention to who it is, who it is that rejects him. So if you've got your Bibles open to Mark chapter 6, I invite you to stand if you are able. Mark chapter 6, we'll pick up in verse 1. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open it to our hearts and our minds. Lord, use it to convict us of sin. Help us to see clearly how we respond to Jesus. Lord, search us and know us. The psalm says, See if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us to walk in your paths. God, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So see on your notes, the main idea is that being 
familiar with Jesus will not suffice for faithfully following him. Being familiar with Jesus does not equate to being a Christian. Knowing things about Jesus does not mean that you are following Jesus. We must come to Jesus through faith on his terms. We don't get to come to Jesus and say, this is what I'm willing to believe. This is the distance that I'm willing to follow. We come to Jesus and say yes to whatever he has. Yes to whatever he says. Even if it leads us to change. And it often will. As a matter of fact, it always will. Jesus will change us. And so just to, just to remind us of where we are in the story, give us some context. Jesus has moved from the seashore. He's crossed back over the sea. Last time we saw him, he was on the seashore of Galilee. He's traveled about 25 miles inland to the town of Nazareth. You may have heard the phrase Jesus of Nazareth. It was back in his hometown, which is about 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee. And a number of days have passed, and it's the Sabbath day, and he's he's in the local synagogue. And Mark, remember, is not interested in all of the details that he can possibly tell us about what's going on in these stories, about what's going on in the life of Jesus. He's not telling us every single detail that's happening. He wants us to pick up on what he deems the most important things. And here in this story, he's highlighting that Jesus' rejection in his hometown is on the basis of his authoritative teaching. That's why Nazareth rises up against him, because he walks into the synagogue and says, Thus says the Lord. And they reject him for it. And so we have seen over and over again how Mark is highlighting through Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds that he has all authority. That he has come to wield that authority. And here his authority is expressed clearly in his teaching and Nazareth is offended to the core. His hometown, his own people. Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, as I said, and in a few moments we'll flip over to Luke chapter 4, where Luke tells us in more detail what happened. And Mark is not ignoring those details as much as bringing attention to the fact that it was Jesus' authority that offended these people. But Mark's also using this encounter to balance the story of Jesus, to teach us about true reality when it comes to living in the world and following Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus Christ. We have just seen Jesus calm a megastorm. We have just seen him cast out legion. We have just seen him heal a woman with an issue of blood. We have just seen him raise a girl from the dead. And so we may be tempted to ask, what can't Jesus do? Who in their right mind wouldn't follow Jesus? And Mark gives us this very sober answer. His own people. His family. Those who know him best. That's the ones, those are the ones who won't follow him. 
Now, before we make the mistake of thinking they might not have known about all that stuff, Mark says it very clearly. They were questioning, how did he do all these powerful things? So they knew about it. And so Mark's balancing the story. Jesus does some incredible things because he's God. And yet his own people reject him. It's also a transitional encounter. Next week, we're going to see Jesus send out the disciples. He's going to call them to himself. If you remember back in Mark chapter 3, it said he called the 12 to be with him and that he might send them. And so from chapter 3 through chapter 6, they have been with him. And next week, we're going to see Jesus send them out. But for right now, they are with him in Nazareth and they are with him in rejection. And Jesus is preparing them for the realities of gospel ministry in the world. Rejection will come. Let me ask this question for us this morning. Are we too comfortable with Jesus? You think back on your life. I don't know how long you've been in church. I don't know how long you've been around church. I don't know how long you have owned a Bible. I don't know how long a lot of you, I know some of the things about some of you. But collectively, I can't answer that question about all of you. But the question is for you specifically. Are you too comfortable with Jesus? That's the question confronting us in this text this morning. The pastor notes that the people of Nazareth's very familiarity with him, Jesus, the fact that they knew him, the fact that they were familiar with him, that is a hindrance to knowing him truly. It makes it all the more hard to see who he is because they can't see past his ordinariness. He's ordinary. He's one of us. He grew up here. Jesus has most most likely spent 30 of his 31 or 2 years at this point in Nazareth. And it's not like he's unknown. But they can't see him because they think they know him. And so here's the question this morning. Do you think you know him? I'm not asking you that question. I'm I'm, I'm begging you to hear that question from Scripture. Mark is confronting us with it. Do we know Jesus? It's like when spouses argue. And are unwilling to hear each other. But somebody else outside says the very same thing. And one of them says. Sometimes we can't hear those whom we know best. Sometimes we can't hear those whom we know the most. It's like when you go to a conference, the one who everybody is so excited to hear is the expert who comes from far away. But you may have somebody in your life that's been saying the same thing over and over and over again, but because you know them, you can't hear them. The townspeople were too familiar with Jesus to hear him, and yet they thought they knew him. I was talking with a friend of mine about this text and he said, the question arises to me of do we know the Christ or do we know a domesticated version of him? 
Have we taken Jesus and made him comfortable for us? Or do we know him? Well, let's look at this story and how it unfolds. And in verses one through four, we see that Jesus is questioned and rejected in his hometown. He tells us that on the very next Sabbath day, Jesus goes to the synagogue as, a, as all the town would do, the Jewish town would do, and he, he taught. And right here in Mark, not much is mentioned about the substance of what he taught, but it was radical enough to astonish the people. Now that's a strong word. Astonishment is a strong word. Think about, if you can, the last time you were astonished or flabbergasted or stunned. It doesn't happen all that often. We can be surprised, we can be taken aback at times, but astonished is a strong word. One scholar says that it literally translates, they were being knocked out by his teaching. Now that's a strong word. If someone is delivering a message that is knocking you out, that's a strong message. Now I have sat under faithful preachers of the word and I have had faithful, uh, worshipful encounters with Jesus a lot. But I can remember a few times when I was being knocked out by how God was using that word in that moment in my life. And in these moments, when Jesus was teaching in this synagogue, these people were being knocked out by the authority of his word. And so Mark has been emphasizing Jesus' authority. He's been emphasizing how it affects people. Some hear and respond appropriately. We've seen that throughout the gospel story. Some hear and are offended. Some reject him. Some are so overcome with anger that they are motivated to act against Jesus. We see that with the Pharisees and we see that here in this story. But Mark's focus on Jesus' teaching is that it's radically authoritative. This is not this, hey, here's a great idea, you should listen to this. Or here's a good suggestion for how you should be a good Christian. That's not what's going on here. Jesus has said something radically authoritative. This is the way that it is. And the people have responded negatively. Flip over with me to Luke chapter four and we'll look at the story in a bit more detail. Now Luke doesn't put this story in chronological order but he puts it at the beginning of his gospel to set the stage. Luke gives us more insight into the actual substance of his teaching and and what the crowd does in response. Luke chapter four, picking up in verse 16. Luke says, and he came to Nazareth and where he had been brought up and as as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
It says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So here's what happened. Jesus walks in. He pulls down the word. He reads the word. And then he says, this is about me. I'm the one. I'm the one who has come as the anointed one of God. I'm the one who has come to proclaim the good news to the poor. I'm the one who has come to liberate the captives, to heal the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's me. And Luke goes on to say, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, is not this Joseph's son? So here's what's going on. Jesus is reading these words and everybody is in agreement. And then he says, that's about me. And they all say, well, hang on a minute. That, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit with this idea of who I think you are. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What have we heard? You did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, and he goes on to prophesy about Israel rejecting the Messiah. Now look at verse 28 in Luke chapter four. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So here's the scene. Jesus proclaims with authority. He is the word. He is God. The people The people are so incensed. They're so angered because that's not who they thought Jesus was. Jesus was this comfortable carpenter who they knew. He didn't make any demands on their life. They were comfortable with him. But now all of a sudden he's saying, I am God. I have the authority that is in the word of God. And I'm telling you, I have come to exercise that authority. And what do they do? They take him to a cliff to throw him off. Now, this is an incredible story, the way Luke records it. The, 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 the implication is that this huge crowd is in an instant blinded as Jesus kind of slips through and slips away. The time for his death has not yet come. Back to Mark chapter 4. So what was it? What was it that offended these people to the point of murder? It wasn't blasphemy. They weren't arguing that the text was wrong. It was familiarity. What caused them to want to murder Jesus? It was the fact that they knew him. And what he was saying confronted what they thought that they knew. Listen to their questions. Is this not the carpenter? Is this not the son of Mary? Is this not the brother of James? Are these not his sisters who are here with us? See, their anger was not this is wrong. Their anger was, who are you to tell me? 
You ever wonder why people have a hard time hearing people they know well? Or why they have a hard time hearing something that might contradict their own beliefs? See, the people of Nazareth refused Jesus because they thought they knew him. And because what he was saying contradicted what they believed. They had this settled belief about the word of God and about who Jesus was and his relation to the word of God and what he said contradicted that. I did some research on listening and on hearing. I did some research particularly about how do we listen and hear within close relationships. Asking the question, why is it easier to to listen to a stranger or to listen to somebody outside? You see, we all struggle in various ways with this issue. If you're married, you know very well. We all struggle with this. I've put on your notes there a few of these things that I have found. But you see, a conflict arises when we share different values. And in Nazareth, a conflict had arisen. The value of the people of Nazareth was this. Jesus is one of us. He's normal. He's safe. He's controllable. And Jesus rises up and teaches and says, no, I have all authority and I will exercise that authority. And so there was a conflict. There was a difference in values. But here's some of the things why we struggle to hear. The first one is called confirmation bias. This means that we only hear what we already believe. I'm only willing to listen to you if you're going to say what I want to hear. This really goes up if I like you. If I like you, I'm going to listen to what you say. A second one is narcissism, the reason we don't believe. I know best is that idea. I'm right, I can't possibly be wrong. And if this is you or you know somebody like this, then you know that these kind of people tend not to hear. Anger. Anger's another reason we don't hear. Anger opens the mouth and closes the ears. You see, in in Nazareth, the people grew angry at Jesus. And so their ears closed and they were unwilling to hear distrust is another reason why we don't hear oftentimes other people you see when you eat a piece of rotten food usually you spit it out you decide in a moment this is bad this is not good this is toxic and so we react naturally and spit it out In the same way, if we receive information that we deem wrong or distrustful or toxic, we reject it. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. Another one is closed-mindedness. We've already made up our mind. We're unwilling to hear others' opinions or convictions. Another one is projection. Attributing your own thoughts, your own attitudes, your own feelings onto the other person. Well, you're not the one. You're you're the one who's not listening. I'm listening, but you're not listening. Another one is assumption. We can jump to conclusions. And when we have decided or when we have made an assumption about someone else, we tend to begin to shut down and stop hearing. 
The last one on your notes that you see is defensiveness. Differing opinions are attacks. To somebody who's defensive, somebody who's defensive, if, if you have a difference of opinion with me, you might perceive that as that I'm attacking you. And we stop listening. See, our natural tendency is to reject things we don't want to hear. Especially when it comes from those who are closest to us. There are lots of practical applications for these realities in the Christian life and in the life of the local church. Lots of applications. But my focus this morning is that they help us make sense of why Nazareth rejected Jesus. All kinds of applications. But they help us understand why did Nazareth reject Jesus? Why did they reject their own son? But you see, it also helps us understand why do we struggle with rejecting Jesus in our own lives? That leads us to the second point on your notes, the role of faith in salvation and following Jesus. We see that he was rejected. But now we need to ask, what's the role of faith? Mark records this very confusing phrase. He could do no mighty works there except heal a few people. If you ever say God can't do something, that's uncomfortable to say. And Mark says it this way to startle us. He could do no mighty works there. And what Mark doesn't mean is that Jesus was somehow limited in a way that he couldn't control. That's not, that's not what Mark is saying. Mark is drawing attention to the relationship between faith and seeing Jesus rightly. He's also explaining miracles. Jesus exercises his power towards those whom he draws to faith. And it also says Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two times in the gospel where Jesus marvels. He marvels at Nazareth's, unbe- Nazareth's unbelief. It's a tongue, tire, tongue twister. And he marvels at another man's belief. But here he is marveling. He is stunned at their unbelief. And Mark is tying together the performing of miracles and the people's faith. This hard-hearted people had refused to believe. We know this guy. He's the carpenter. He's Mary's son. We know his siblings. They're all normal. He can't be abnormal. He can't be different. He can't be what he's saying. And they had refused to believe. Their hearing had shut down. You see, there's a difference between people who struggle with doubt. There are a lot of Christians who struggle with doubt, and that's normal. There is a distinct difference between struggling with doubt and hard-hearted rejection, being unwilling to believe. The townspeople had heard of his great powers. Mark tells us that in verse 2. They heard, but they refused to believe. And because they refused to believe, they would receive nothing in Nazareth. No great works would be done because their faith was hard. 
Many times people will take up the attitude, when I understand Jesus, I'll believe. When I, when I begin to see Jesus doing things in my life that I want to see done, I'll, I'll believe. When he starts to bless me, I will follow. But Mark's point in the text is captured well by a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I see that the sun has risen. I can look up, there it is. He says, I believe in Christianity that just as the sun has risen, but not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. A lot of us want to say, Jesus, show me everything else, and then I'll believe in you. And that's not the way it works. If we want to experience richness in our faith, if we want to experience a settledness that comes, that, that, brings, that brings peace, that surpasses all understanding, if we want to taste and experience that contentment that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, it doesn't come by trying to work our way to Jesus. It comes by recognizing he is the only way. talking about this as I said a moment ago with a friend of mine and I'm going to quote him because his comments were stunning kind of one of those knocked out moments here's what he said he said what surprises me is that the central thought to this story is that the Nazarenes knew Jesus they were familiar with his family they had history with him and still rejected the gospel He said, these people were more familiar with Jesus and his backstory than many of us are. They were closer to his earthly existence than we are. They breathed the same air, shopped at the same markets, ate the same food, and would not trust him. Seeing, they did not see. Hearing, they did not hear. And the main thing that characterizes the Nazarenes in this story is their lack of faith. He says, we need to ask the question, am I like that? Have have I taken for granted knowledge of him? Is my awareness of Jesus more about him rather than faith in him? Does Jesus fit nicely with my existing ideals or does he totally contradict me in order to breathe life into me? He says, am I, am I more confident that he is more than a picture on my wall? Do I know in my heart that he stands at the right hand of the Father, full of grace and truth, and he is ministering on my behalf before God? Or do you feel the absence of his ministry? Are you coming to the realization that he is not or may not be ministering on your behalf? That like the Nazarenes, you were comfortable knowing about him. But now you may be realizing that he is not ministering on your behalf, that he is not your Lord, that when he has confronted you, you may have shut down. It leads me into our conclusion, the reflection. 
We need to ask this question. Am I seeing Jesus for who he is? Am I listening to him obediently? You see, the townspeople rejected him. The people who thought they knew him best rejected him. And Mark is saying, Mark is screaming out, don't be like these foolish people. Don't get so comfortable with Jesus that you can't hear him. Don't get so comfortable with the idea of being a Christian or of going to church or of having things that are religious and leading a religious lifestyle. Don't get so comfortable with that that you miss Jesus. They rejected his authority for foolish reasons. We know him. We know him. He wouldn't do that to me. He wouldn't make those kind of authoritative statements. His message is not that offensive. He can't be right. For you and I, the danger that these Nazarenes faced is the same. Perhaps you have a picture of Jesus in your mind, a a picture that's familiar, a picture that you're comfortable with. One where Jesus saves you, but doesn't call on you to do anything hard. Maybe it's a picture where Jesus comforts you, but never confronts you. Maybe it's a picture where he affirms you, but never criticizes you. Maybe it's a picture where he only pats you on the back and never disciplines you. But if that's you, take warning. If that's your idea of Jesus, you will receive the same Jesus that Nazareth did. He'll do no great works in your life. But the flip side, but the flip side, Jesus has already answered this question. Jesus has already answered, who is his family? Who are those who know him? If you remember back to chapter three, verses 31 through 35, Jesus is teaching in a house and people are surrounded. And someone comes up and says, Jesus, your family's outside. They want you. And he says, who, who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Who's my family? He says, I tell you, those who do the will of my father are my family. You see, Jesus' true power and his glory are available only to those who trust him and follow him. Only for those who obediently come to him in faith on his terms. Which means repenting over sin. It means turning away from worldly living. It means obediently following him. It means being in submission to his word. One of the most beautiful promises from Jesus is that obedience. Obedience is the path to joy and intimate faith. We want to have the intimacy with Jesus. We want to have the joy that's unshakable, but we seek it so often outside of being obedient. And Jesus says, the only way to know me, the only way to follow me, the only way to be intimate with me, Jesus says, is to be obedient. To do the will of my Father. You see, this sets us up to where Mark will take us next week. 
We're experiencing his rejection. And next week, Jesus is going to say, here's what real faith looks like. Go. Go and share the gospel. If we aren't listening to Jesus rightly, we will find any and every excuse to reject him. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that I am humbled and I pray the same for those under the sound of my voice. God, come now and deal with us on the basis and authority of your word. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I want to invite you to do business with God. If that for you means doing it at your seat, then do it at your seat. I'm available down front. Come and pray with me. Come and pray at the altar. Find somebody to pray with, but let's stand now and respond. If you've been a part of our Wednesday night studies, you remember that that song comes right out of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, build your house upon the rock. Build your house on the truth. Uh, I got two things. I want to I inform you of something. Pray, and then I got one more announcement and we'll be done. Uh, I want to inform you of Thomas Long. Many of you know and love uh, Thomas and Edna Long. Thomas is most likely in his final days of his life, and the family's gathered around him. <clears throat> And we need to be praying for their family. Uh, pray that God is gracious to them and that, and that he welcomes Thomas into his presence and, and, and meets with his family and binds them up as they mourn his passing. So let's, let's pray for them now uh, as we conclude. Lord, we pray for our brother Thomas. We pray, God, that you would greet him when he comes to, into your presence. What a joyful day that will be for him. 
What a sweet, sweet time. And yet, oh God, for those of us who are left behind, for his family, there will be a period of mourning and of grief. And God, I pray that you would comfort them in that time and that you would remind them of the glory that Thomas is experiencing, of the glory that is ours if we are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, I pray that you would be near to them in their brokenheartedness and that you would save them as they are crushed in their spirit. Lord, we love them. I pray that you would, you would mobilize us as their church to rally around them and bear them up. God, I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Uh, pay attention to your uh, bulletin. Lots going on. Uh, our, our revival, spring revival is next month. So please make uh, plans to attend that and to uh, be present on Wednesday night of that week, we'll be having a family meal. And so you'll find some of these sheets in your Sunday school classes uh, just to help us out so we know how many to prepare for. If you're planning to be there, please sign up. And uh, it'll be a great week. And I think God's gonna bless it. So I encourage you to be there. Other than that, have a great Sunday.